When was the last time you sat and listened to silence? And thought of nothing? Go on, try it, just for a few seconds. Okay, so it doesn't work quite as well when you've just put a podcast on and then you're immediately instructed to think of nothing. But hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll be inspired to spend a little more time doing and thinking about, well, nothing. You're listening to The Anthill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Annabelle Bly, and you guessed it, this episode is all about nothing. We'll find out what happens to people put in solitary confinement with very little to do and a life spent with nobody to talk to. We've also got the UK's Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees, on the show. He's talking to us about the concept of nothingness in outer space, how the universe started from nothing, and whether it will all return to nothing in the end. But first, back in the here and now on planet Earth, why is it so hard for us to just sit still and do nothing? And scrolling through social media doesn't count. We're talking about no distractions, nada, niet. Everybody everywhere seems to be busy. Busy with work, busy with the kids, busy with family, busy exercising, busy meditating, busy being busy. Busyness has become a status symbol of our time. Being busy is associated with success and fulfilment in most societies. So we view busyness as something to aspire to. I am busy, therefore I matter. But what about if you could achieve more by doing less? We sent the conversation's Holly Squire to investigate. We've all been there. You're sitting in a work meeting, listening to a presentation, when your thoughts start to drift off. You zone out. And the next thing you know, you're thinking about what you're doing later that evening or the holiday you're going on in a few weeks' time. Daydreaming has a bad reputation. It's usually seen as a waste of time or something that happens when you aren't paying attention. But it turns out that daydreaming can actually be pretty good for you. Not only can daydreaming give us a chance to think about what's coming next, but some psychologists also believe, done in the right way, daydreaming can actually make you more creative. And in fact, some evidence indicates that daydreaming is a sign of intelligence. So with that in mind, I've been trying to cultivate my own daydreaming practice with a few tips from an expert. My name is Julia Puerio and I am a research associate at the University of Sheffield. So a lot of people kind of tend to have negative perceptions of daydreaming. They think it's, you know, a fantasy. They're often told to stop daydreaming as children. But what we mean by daydreaming is any thoughts that are unrelated to the, what's going on in the present environment. So, you know, you might, as you're listening to this, you might be thinking about an email that you need to reply to or something like that. And we would class that as a daydream or an instance of mind wandering. A lot of the work that I've looked at has tried to look at the positive benefits of daydreaming daydreaming. So in particular, the positive emotional benefits of daydreaming. What some of my research has shown is that if you use your imagination and your daydreams um, in a positive way, when you daydream about other people, you can do things like relieve loneliness and improve your emotional well-being. So there's this idea that we can use our imagination and our daydreams to enhance our social and emotional well-being. Scientists aren't fully sure yet why we do daydream, but it has been found that the brain at rest spends a huge amount of energy on daydreaming. So it must be important. 
as Julia explains. Research has shown that we spend between 30 and 50% of our time daydreaming. So there must be a reason why we spend so much time engaged in this kind of thought. So if you think about it, we spend as much time in daydreaming as we do sleeping. So it must serve some sort of adaptive value. The key idea is that daydreaming is helpful for the pursuit and the achievement of our goals. And these might be kind of really far reaching, like being happy, or they could be really concrete and immediate, like, you know, deciding what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow or something like that. So the idea really is that daydreams are adaptive because they enable you to achieve your goals um, in some senses. I mean, not all daydreams are going to do this, but quite often when you analyze the content of people's daydreams, they tend to be thinking about their current concerns, what's going on in their lives. So they might be thinking about an argument that they've had with somebody or, you know, perhaps how to respond to a difficult social situation. So people, rather than thinking about really fanciful things in their daydreams, when their minds wander, people tend to be thinking about things that are concerning them or goals that they've got that they're trying to pursue. It seems then that from an evolutionary perspective, daydreaming allows us to plan and achieve our goals by thinking and learning from the past, present and the future. One thing about humans is that they're very future orientated. So we think about the future a lot. And that is also reflected in daydreams because most people's daydreams are not only focused on things that are relevant to them, so their personal goals, but also on things that are focused on the future. So people tend to be thinking about the future, other people and things that are personally relevant to them during their daydream activity. An experience that a lot of people have is they think, oh, what should I have said in that situation? So you can replay situations and perhaps learn for the future. And then when you're anticipating something, you know, you've got to give a talk at work or you've got to have an important meeting, you might anticipate and rehearse that interaction before it occurs. Hmm, that's got me thinking. I wonder, is it possible to actually decide in advance what you're going to daydream about and then plan them for times like bus journeys or long train journeys when you'd otherwise just be scrolling on your phone or staring out of the window? A lot of daydreams happen spontaneously. So you, you don't really have that much control over them. They often happen as a sort of a mental break from whatever task you're doing. And quite often you can't avoid that happening. So in terms of making daydreaming practice more deliberate, you certainly could try and harness your imagination and, and make it a more deliberate practice. But there's also, you know, something to say for having periods of time where you are letting the mind wander. So if you're struggling with a problem, quite often if you take a break, that can often give you a solution. And during this time, that's when you're likely to be daydreaming. So there's this idea that this kind of unconstrained resting state of the brain might be helping with things like problem solving and creativity. So certainly not maybe deliberately daydreaming about X topic, but planning in time to maybe not to do something so mentally taxing and to let your mind wander and, and, and see where it takes you. I've spoken to lots of people about their imagination and their daydreams. And what's really interesting is that you quite often assume that people have similar imaginations to you. So you might assume that because you can see visual images, perhaps in colour and movement, that other people can. And actually, there are quite a lot of individual differences in the extent to which people have you know, vivid imaginations. So I think that some people will be naturally more able to use their imagination in these ways. And typically people have very vivid imaginations, whereas other people perhaps, you know, can't manipulate their imagination in the way that other people 
can. My imagination's very bad. I experience something called aphantasia, which is I, I basically don't see any visual images at all. I just have a verbal stream of consciousness, which I assumed everybody had. I thought that people were speaking in metaphors when they said, oh, I saw it like this I'm in my mind's eye. And I thought, oh, well, no, you don't actually see it, do you? And a lot of people are like, well, yes, actually, I do. And so that's made me really appreciate that people are different in their imagination. But what about the downsides of daydreaming? Can it have a dark side? When you are thinking about the future in a negative way and you're catastrophizing or you're worrying, that can have a negative impact on your emotions as well. So there's a downside to these kinds of cognitions um, and it really depends on the way which you use your imagination. It may be the case that if you know, you're really, really worrying about something and you're thinking about the worst possible outcome and you're not thinking about steps to mitigate that negative outcome, then that kind of daydreaming activity might not be a constructive way to mentally time travel. So while daydreaming can be a good thing, ruminating over negative thoughts or situations can actually be quite damaging. Also, it's worth pointing out that when you let your mind wander away from the present to fantasies that will probably never come true, like wishing you could win the lottery, daydreaming can actually make you feel less happy. So it's important to try and not let your daydreaming turn into escapism. This is backed up with research which shows the importance of being present and living in the moment. It seems then that the best thing to do if you want to try and tap into the powers of your daydreams is to start by just granting yourself permission to let the mind wander. But avoid doing this just before going to bed. As Judy says, that getting your brain stimulated just before lights out can lead to an increase in sleep difficulties. And who knows, by allowing your brain the time and space it needs to think things over, it might be that you not only improve your well-being creativity, but you also might come up with a solution to that problem you've long been mulling over. Holly Squire there talking to Sheffield University's Julia Puerio. Now, having just exhorted you to spend more time letting your mind wander and escaping the busyness of life, we explore what it's like when this is forced upon you when you've got very little but your own thoughts to occupy you and nobody to share them with. Next up, I take a look at life in solitary confinement. Imagine spending 23 hours a day, locked up, alone in a cell. The only human contact you get is when a prison guard comes to put chains on you to take you to the bathroom. Even your food is delivered through a small hole in the door. Solitary confinement has long been a feature of prison systems around the world. It was first widely and systematically used in the 19th century, something historian Hilary Marland at the University of Warwick has researched. It was all about isolation of the prisoner in, in his cell. Prisoners was to remain in their cells for 23 hours out of 24. They worked in their cells, they ate their meals in their cells and they were taken out of the cells for exercise, but they were kept apart from other prisoners. Their faces were covered by masks when they left their prison cell. They were also taken to daily services in the uh, chapel. But again, they were put into sort of separate, almost like boxes. They referred to them as coffins in the, in the uh, chapel. So they weren't able to uh, observe other prisoners. It might sound like a punishing regime, but the reasoning behind the separate system, as it was called, was that it would allow prisoners time to reflect on their crimes. And it was hoped that it would rehabilitate them. 
although it sounds horrendous and indeed in practice it, it was horrendous but the idea was by isolating the prisoner and keeping them in their cell for most of the time they will be enabled to reflect on their previous crimes and they would reach some state of deep thoroughgoing redemption the idea was that the prison chaplain would be on hand to counsel prisoners and help bring them to repentance. Hilary Marlin's research into prison memoirs reveals that some chaplains did their jobs better than others. Memoirs have mixed feelings about the chaplains. Some say they were very attentive. Others say they, you know, they never saw the prison chaplain. They, they were supposed to see them regularly, but they didn't. But some certainly put a lot of effort into this reformatory process. And Chaplain Kingsmill, who is based at Pentonville, writes in his prison journal about his daily visitations to the prisoners to induce them to reform and the long conversations he had in the cell. And he seems to have worked very hard So it's not like these prisoners had nothing to do, no stimulation. But numerous memoirs make it clear that the separate system was not conducive to improving the mental health of prisoners. So they directly attribute high incidences of mental breakdown in prison to the system of separate confinement and to the isolation of the cell. They talk a good deal of their horror of entering the cell and that this tiny whitewashed space where they would spend 10 or 15 years doing their prison sentences. Prisoners also did talk about the horrible blankness of the cell, the sense of isolation in this space. So although they did a lot of activities under normal circumstances of separate confinement, they ate in their cell, they worked in their cell as well, and of course they slept there, they did talk a lot about this feeling of blankness and emptiness, and particularly projecting forward this sense of monotony and nothingness, which would go on into the long distance. And many were very well aware of the number of days, which might be several thousand, that they would be uh, serving under these kinds of conditions. It became increasingly apparent to prison authorities that the separate system did not serve its intended purpose of rehabilitation and so they started using it as a form of punishment instead. It's kind of retooled in a way. There's a loss of faith in its ability to reform. And by the 1860s and 70s, there's more interest by that time in its use as a tool of punishment and deterrence. So by putting prisoners in this situation of separate confinement is seen to be actually a very severe form of punishment. And there's still some kind of hope that it will lead to reform and it will stop prisoners reoffending. But the emphasis is very much on severity, deterrence and making the system more penal. And that system endures right through to the early 20th century when it starts to be dismantled. So as Hillary says, by the early 20th century, Prisons in the UK and the US formally abandoned the separate system. But the use of solitary confinement did not entirely disappear. It seems to be a part of the DNA of prisons that you almost always have a prison within the prison somewhere. And then for a variety of reasons, you place people there. That's Peter Scharf-Smith, a professor at Oslo University, who has spent 20 years studying different prison systems, the use of solitary confinement and the effect it has on people. 
He says the thing that makes solitary confinement so awful is the lack of psychologically meaningful social contact. There's an international definition now which has evolved during the last decade and is accepted in the UN that if you leave a prisoner alone for between 22 to 24 hours each day, then it's solitary confinement. And this is a situation where you have typically little or even no access to what we could call psychologically meaningful social contact. So you might have some contact during day, but typically it's, it's not psychologically meaningful social contact. So this ranges from super maximum security or supermax prisons in the US, where prisoners are commonly locked up for years in Spartan seven foot by 12 foot concrete cells for 23 hours a day and given one hour where they can exercise by themselves in a slightly bigger space outside. Then in Scandinavia, suspects are sometimes held in isolation before trial if it's thought that they might interfere with an investigation. This can go on for days or even weeks. Their conditions are better than the US ones, but it's not having nothing to do that's the issue. It's the lack of social contact that people really struggle with, says Peter. So if you take a typical pre-trial isolation cell in, in the Nordic countries, then you would have fairly decent physical standard. It would be a single cell, obviously, and you will have a bed. Sometimes now it's more common with the, with the toilet available in the cell. And then you will have, not always, but often you'll have access to a radio and a TV and you can get something to read, etc. What's interesting, if we look at this research on actual prisoners and actual prisoners from, from very different countries, we can see that there are effects of solitary confinement regardless of whether people have access to a TV, for example. There hasn't been a great deal of research into the health effects of solitary confinement because it's hard for academics to get access to prisoners. But the research which we have, which has been done, for example, by Craig Haney in the USA, show truly frightening levels of all kinds of physical and men mental pathologies ranging from I mean, sleep deprivation to hallucination and all kinds of dramatic mental health effects, depression, anxiety, etc. 91% of the inmates that Haney studied suffered from anxiety and nervousness. 70% felt like they were on the verge of an emotional breakdown, and 77% were in a state of chronic depression. To find out more about why solitary confinement and the lack of meaningful social contact especially has this kind of effect on people, I spoke to neuroscientist Ross Vanderwert, who's based at Cardiff University. He says that the lack of stimulation a person can get leads to a huge decline in brain activity. It probably comes down to the fact that we're social beings and that we need social interaction. Social interaction challenges us and challenges our brain. So in the absence of that, the brain shifts out of an active state and shifts into more of a passive state. It's very common that when people go into solitary confinement, that their heart rate and blood pressure increases after a short period. Ross says this is basically your body's fight-or-flight response system kicking in, but without a physical threat that you actually have to deal with. So if you're in a room generally safe and most things are provided for you, that elevated heart rate, increased blood pressure is still perceived 
as if there is a threat in the environment. And when there isn't a threat there, that can really cause confusion in the individual. So they become hyper aware of their surroundings, it increases their stress levels, and the flood of hormones that come out of the sympathetic nervous system arousal. That's the part of your body that deals with your fight or flight reactions. Impair thinking can increase hypervigilance within the environment. It increases feelings of anxiety and anxiety that isn't linked to any specific threat. And the perception of that then too means that when you're in that hyper state of arousal, you can also have other sort of physical health issues that come out of that. But also you can start to, or your brain will start to try to create reasons for having that feeling of threat and that feeling of anxiety. One theory behind why people suffer hallucinations is that our brains also have a habit of overcompensating for the lack of stimulation in such a tiny concrete cell. In light of all the evidence that solitary confinement has significant negative health effects, Peter Schaaf-Smith and colleagues have worked hard to set international standards for how solitary confinement should and shouldn't be used in prisons. This started with something called the Istanbul Statement, because it was drawn up at a conference in Istanbul. And so this began to be a UN standard. Then the later rapporteur on torture, Juan Mendes, did a thematic report on solitary confinement where he he introduced other standards as well, said that all kinds of punitive isolation, punitive solitary confinement should be abolished, for example, and prolonged solitary confinement, according to his report, was more than 15 days, and that should be abolished as well. These developments then culminated, you could say, with the Mandela rules, which are the new UN prison rules, set of international prison rules. The Mandela rules were adopted by the UN General Assembly in December 2015. Unfortunately, there is no guarantee that states will follow these standards. They will have no direct impact on countries like the US, for example. But, Peter says, there are some parts of the US where they are rethinking the use of solitary confinement in the face of the overwhelming evidence. Rick Ramish, the head of the correctional services in Colorado, started a reform process, and, and it's happened elsewhere, also in North Dakota, for example, where, where they simply say, this is not working, we, are not, we acknowledge that these practices have a negative health effects, so they're dangerous for prisoners, that it's not good prison practice, that it doesn't even create safety, doesn't reduce violence, and they reformed their systems to an incredible extent, cut down on the use of solitary confinement. So far, there are no signs that Supermax is on its way out in the US. And given the fact that some form of isolation has always been used in prisons, it's unlikely that the practice will stop altogether. But hopefully, and especially if prisons want inmates to reform their behaviour, they will begin to follow the Mandela rules for the treatment of prisoners. Before our final segment with astronomer royal Martin Rees, we wanted to tell you about a new podcast launching this month from our colleagues over at The Conversation US. It's called Heat and Light, and it's a six-episode series of stories from 1968, a year that transformed America. Hi, my name's Philip Martin. 
I'm the host of a new show called Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968 We're going to bring you these stories from the people who know them best, who were so deeply impacted by the events of that year that they made it their lives' work to study them. Tune in starting August 28th, right here. It's Heat and Light. Now back to nothing. Philosophers have been arguing about the concept of nothing for thousands of years. But what has science got to say about it? When physicists talk about nothing, they regard it as empty space, a vacuum. But over the past century, researchers have discovered that even a vacuum cannot be empty. Particles and electromagnetic waves continuously pop into and out of existence. Is this in fact how our universe started? And is it what will be left when it all ends? The Conversation's science editor, Miriam Frankel, spoke to one of the UK's most eminent astrophysicists to find out about the latest developments. Nothing cannot exist, concluded the Greek philosopher Parmenides in the 5th or 6th century BC, arguing that to speak of a thing, one has to speak of a thing that exists. Parmenides was one of the first Western thinkers known to have pondered the topic of nothing. Now it seems he has been backed up by modern science. When physicists talk about nothing, they regard it as empty space, what you get when you pump all the atoms out of some container. But over the past century, researchers have discovered that such an empty container can never strictly be empty. Strange things happen, even in the absence of something. The findings have implications for how our universe arose and how it will end. To learn more, I caught up with Martin Rees, the UK's Astronomer Royal and an Emeritus Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics at the University of Cambridge. The standard question going back to antiquity is, why is there something rather than nothing? And of mm. course, that is a fundamental question, uh, which philosophers still debate. Uh, we can, of course, um, pose it in more specific ways in the context of particular theories, because we have got a better understanding of what empty space is and uh, empty space Although it seems to be nothing to us, that is just in the same way that water may seem to be nothing to a fish because it's uh, what's left when you take away all the uh, other things floating in the sea. Um, so nothing uh, in the sense of empty space is, we realize, quite complicated. And so we have to look deeper to actually uh, satisfy the philosophers. And I think it's very important to bear in mind that the philosopher's nothing is not the same as a physicist's vacuum. We know that uh, the universe is very empty. The average uh, density of space is about one atom in every 10 cubic meters. 
far better than any vacuum we could get on Earth. But even if you take that away, you have the properties of space, uh, which is emptiness and allows waves to propagate through it. And there are certain mysteries because we've learned that there is a sort of energy in empty space itself. The first sign that empty space isn't really empty came with the rise of quantum mechanics in the 20th century, a theory which governs the tiny world of atoms and particles. Lots of strange things can happen in this microcosmos. Particles can be in two places at the same time. And, perhaps most important to our understanding of nothing, particles can randomly pop out of empty space. That's because quantum mechanics suggests that empty space is made up of a field of underlying background energy that fluctuates over time, giving rise to fleeting electromagnetic waves and particles that pop in and out of existence. We also know that these fields of nothing can actually generate a tiny force. Put two uncharged conductive plates close to each other in a vacuum, and they can move together due to a tiny attractive force that arises between them. Had there been truly nothing there, this couldn't take place. The fact that the vacuum has energy can also be seen on the largest of scales, that of the entire universe. Well, it's macroscopic effects. The fact that even empty space exerts a force is a discovery made 20 years ago in cosmology, where, to everyone's surprise, the expansion of the universe was found to be accelerating. This was a surprise because the expanding universe had been known, of course, for more than 50 years, but everyone expected that the expansion would be gradually slowing down because everything exerts a gravitational pull on everything else, and so because of all the galaxies and their gravitational force, we expected the expansion to be decelerating. It was therefore a big surprise to find that that deceleration due to gravity is overwhelmed by something which is pushing the expansion, and this is, as it were, energy latent in empty space itself. Uh, which causes a sort of repulsion, uh, which outweighs the attraction of gravity on these large scales. And so this is the most dramatic manifestation of the fact that empty space is not featureless and irrelevant, is determining the long-term fate of the universe. This mysterious expanding force, dubbed dark energy, makes up 70% of the energy in the universe. So there we have it. Empty space isn't empty on tiny scales, nor is it empty on enormous ones. But does that at least mean that we finally know exactly what empty space is? Unfortunately not. At a certain scale, a trillion trillion times smaller than an atom, quantum fluctuations of space-time can give rise to not just virtual particles, but to virtual black holes. This is a scale that we cannot observe and where we have to combine Einstein's theory of gravity with quantum mechanics to probe what happens theoretically. Sadly, we don't really know how to do that, imposing a limit on what we can know. There are lots of theories trying to understand this. The most famous is string theory, but none of these theories have yet engaged with the real world, so they're still just speculation. But I think everyone agrees that space itself has a complicated structure on this tiny, tiny scale. And to expand a bit on that, we know that our universe of space has three dimensions of space. You can go left and right, backwards and forwards, up and down. 
and time is like a fourth dimension. But it's a strong suspicion that if you were to magnify a little point in space so that you were probing this tiny, tiny scale, a trillion, trillion times smaller than an atom, you would find that what we think of as a point in our space is a tightly wound origami in about five extra dimensions. And that we don't see those dimensions because they're wound up tightly. Rather as if you look at a hose pipe from a long way away, you think it's just a line, one dimension, whereas in fact it's three dimensions. So the most popular theory suggests that every point in our space is actually a tightly wound origami in many extra dimensions. This is complex mathematics. We don't have a decent theory for this yet, but that's what we're going to need if we are to understand at the deepest level the nearest to nothingness that we can imagine, namely empty space. But within our current understanding, how can we explain our entire universe arising from nothing? Does the current model even allow us to begin to answer this profound question? Could the universe, which is so big that it may even be infinite, really start off from a bit of fluctuating vacuum energy? There could be some kind of space uh, which suddenly went into expanding phase. So the fluctuations intrinsic to quantum theory would then be able to, as it were, shake the entire universe. And this is something which is inevitable, again, when the size of the universe gets down to this characteristic, very tiny scale. And that would happen at a time of about 10 to the minus 44 seconds. So that's the earliest time where we can apply any theory we understand to the nature of the universe. So we can extrapolate back our universe uh, with confidence back to a nanosecond, with some confidence right back to this 10 to the minus 44 seconds. But thereafter, all bets are off because everyone accepts that the idea of three dimensions of space and time ticking away has to be uh, superseded by some grander and more complicated theory. But if it is possible that some random part of empty space suddenly started to expand due to some fluctuation and gave rise to the universe as we know it, why wouldn't another part of empty space do exactly the same thing? This thinking forms part of the multiverse theory, which suggests that our universe is just part of many in an infinite multiverse. And despite the fact that we have no evidence of these parallel universes yet, and we may never be able to test the theory, more and more scientists are coming around to the idea. The idea that our Big Bang is not the only thing, and that what we see with our telescopes is a tiny fraction of physical reality, is a popular idea among physicists. And there are many ideas of a sort of cyclic universe that go back 50 years, the idea that uh, our universe uh, may have expanded, but it may eventually contract and start a new universe. This is an idea. So lots of ideas of cyclic universes and even more ideas which suggest that there's far more to physical reality than the volume of space and time that we can probe even with the most powerful telescopes. I think we've no idea whether there was one Big Bang or many, but there are scenarios which predict many Big Bangs and some which predict one, and I think we should explore them all. But if we can't describe in detail how the universe, or multiverse, started, could we know anything about how it will end? Ultimately, will the same empty-ish kind of space that we currently consider as nothing 
be what is left when our universe is gone. The long-range forecast, which is most straightforward, is that the universe goes on expanding at an accelerating rate, becomes uh, ever emptier, ever colder, and that perhaps uh, the particles in it decay, and so the uh, dilution would proceed indefinitely. And so we would end up with, in a sense, a huge volume of space, but it would be even emptier than space is now. That's one scenario, but there are other pictures which involve this uh, force in space reversing, so that there will be a collapse to a so-called big crunch when the density heads towards infinity again. And there's an idea due to Roger Penrose, which is that the universe goes on expanding, becoming ever more dilute, uh, but that somehow when it's got nothing in it, apart from photons, particles of light, then you can somehow rescale things. And that dilute space becomes, in a sense, the uh, generator of some new Big Bang. So that's a rather exotic version of the old cyclic universe idea. Clearly, the consequences of nothing are mind-boggling. Even if we could understand exactly how the fluctuation of some weird energized field under the influence of gravity can give rise to an entire universe, doesn't that beg the question of where that field came from in the first place? I asked Martin Rees how satisfied he is with our current level of understanding. Well, science is a process whereby we try to answer questions, but every time we answer questions, new ones come into focus. We never have a complete picture. And uh, I would say that when I was uh, starting research in the late 1960s, whether there was a Big Bang at all was controversial. Now, it's not controversial, and we can, with 2% precision or thereabouts, say what the universe was like all the way back from the present, 13.8 billion years, back to a nanosecond. That's huge progress in 50 years. And so it's not absurdly optimistic to believe that in the next 50 years, these issues about what happens at the quantum gravity era, which is 10 to minus 44 seconds, may be understood as well as after the first nanosecond is today. So I think uh, it's possible that uh, we will make progress. And certainly, if we don't have the hope of it, we won't even try. And we should clearly be trying to do this. But of course, this raises another question about uh, how much of science is going to be accessible to the human brain. Because it could be that, for instance, the mathematics of string theory is in some sense correct, but that we will never even the greatest mathematicians like Ed Witten be able to understand it well enough to check it against general observation. So that's a, a possible scenario, that there is a correct theory, but it's beyond human brains to understand it, so that will have to await some kind of post-humans to get a fuller understanding. Strangely, it seems that our insights into nothing are helping us expand our view of what everything means, from our familiar universe to a potential infinite multiverse. And ultimately, to really nail down precisely what nothing is, it looks like we are going to need a proper theory of everything. Miriam Frankel there talking to Martin Rees. That's nearly it for this episode of The Ant Hill. 
But before we go, here are some other podcasts you should check out featuring academics and their research. If you're worried about the battle against antibiotic resistance in the farm industry, go and listen to Jonathan Rushton and Lucy Coyne explain the complexity of the issue for veterinary medicine in the University of Liverpool podcast. It's a regular show interviewing academic experts from the university. And check out the latest episode of the Conversations In-Depth Out Loud podcast, featuring long-read stories written by academic experts. To mark the 40th birthday of Louise Brown, the first baby born via IVF, our latest episode tracks the history of infertility and how IVF helped change the way we think about it. That's In-Depth Out Loud from The Conversation. And if you're looking for more science podcasts, have a listen to Mosaic Science from The Wellcome Trust. Recent episodes have looked at how close scientists are to a cure for Huntington's disease, to how Spain leads the way on organ donation. That's the Mosaic Science podcast. And that is it for this episode of The Anthill. A big thanks to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Anthill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com where you can also sign up to our free daily newsletter. If you got this far, please go one tiny step further and give us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.